Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. This episode, Emotional Experience Design, we are joined by Andy House, client leader at BHDP, to discuss the neuroscience and behavioral psychology behind emotional experience design and how it relates to BHDP's design process. I am your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP, and I'll let our guest introduce himself further. Andy, would you please introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, so exciting to be here. My name is Andy House. I'm a workplace client leader here at BHDP. I'm actually fairly new to the organization. I've followed BHDP the past several years, but I come from a world of design architecture more recently in consulting roles and relationship building with certain key clients and in retail and hospitality and other uh, experience like design settings. But I also have worked on the corporate side with architecture and design for Abercrombie & Fitch for many years here in Columbus. Oh, they know a lot about behavior and experience design. That's interesting because it's a pretty wide topic, you know, behavioral psychology, emotional experience, neuroscience. But from a designer's perspective, what made you become interested in researching this science? I'm a lifelong student. I'm constantly learning. From a young age, as an artist and even a musician, I've found ways to link the relationships between arts and sciences. There's a point when I got into taking different electives in college Psychology caught my eye and specifically the department of psychology and the way that they experiment with students. So I started participating in experiments in the psychology building and that was super fascinating. Keep in mind, I'm, I'm an architecture student and also an interior design student. So with the electives I needed, I found a lot of excitement in the way that the brain works. And then I started fusing that with design. You were doing experiments in the psychology department? Like, yes. What kind of experiments, if I can well, put that bare a little bit? Yeah. Some of the things were testing everything from how you pick up on audio and visual cues and things that, you know, were definitely more around the senses. I realized that there were experiments going on inside the building as you walk through, just a really dynamic place to learn. So I got involved in some of those experiments. It was definitely, I guess, made me think a little bit broader about my perspective of kind of my experience here on earth. (laughs) How does your past experience in connecting behaviors and design lead you to BHDP? Well, I found a natural convergence between retail customer behaviors and with the behaviors and experiences that we share as employees in the workplace. As my passions drove towards that workplace strategy and design, I discovered a strong connection with BHDP's collective ambition as I found it on looking through the website and talking to some people I knew at, at the company. And that collective ambition, I was just gravitated towards, and it, which all ladders up to our company promise, which is designed for people. And what's quite compelling is our foundational design principles that support our philosophy and the company promise. And those principles are informed, empathetic, and exciting. My focus has been using my research and emotional experience design to help strengthen that foundation of empathetic and also the exciting. And the behavioral science ideas and research I'll speak about today allows our design thinking to go much deeper into the realm of exciting. Perfect. And that's what I want to know next, because we talk a lot about empathy. So how does this focus on being empathetic connect with creating exciting designs? Well, there's a deep level of understanding and connection that forms from empathetic focus that we share with our partners. When we become able to stand in our clients' shoes and live their problems and feel their pain points, we can begin to 
tend to their cultural habits, behaviors, and perceptions, and you know, many times make necessary changes to those in order to make better and more exciting experiences. Now, the purpose of exciting is to inspire and to build wonder, to create memories, and I think most importantly, to allow meaningful stories to be told. Why is it important to make the workplace exciting, though? Because, you know, you talk about making that bridge, informed, empathetic, exciting. Sure, it's exciting, but how do you keep it exciting? Like, how do you keep that excitement fresh? Because you're creating memories, but after a while, do you get worn down on the experience? I'll just kind of throw an example out there. So you think about a retail experience, and the idea is to make attraction, create excitement through surprise and delight moments, Bringing a customer back in as a repeat customer is a really important way to build loyalty and to build a connection with that entity. And so when you think about a workplace, as these two ideas converge, a workplace is about bringing people back in, in, in today's world, bringing back people into an, an office environment that feels safe and new a lot of the times, allowing a new experience to happen, allowing new connections to be made and making you feel not only supported and safe in your environment, but also making new relationships, having new perspective, and at the end of the day, walking away from work, feeling excited and invigorated for the next day to come. It sounds like it's more important now than it's ever been because as you say, some people, it's not a return to work, it's a return to the workplace. There are people that have been working through this, so there's a need to build that excitement to um, create an incentive to come back, I suppose, because there's going to be a lot of fear around it. What areas of the design process, do you see empathy playing a role? Because I know we have our own design process at BHDP. So what does empathy mean to you and how are we using it? As psychology refers to it, there's a few different levels of empathy. There is sort of this area of empathy that's much more tied to emotional empathy. So kind of understanding someone's feelings, catching what their feelings are. There's cognitive empathy, which is the one that we're trying to be as problem solvers. We're trying to figure out What's wrong with the situation? What is the reasoning why a client of ours or someone that's using a space in, in retail or in a workplace, trying to figure out what it is that is making them upset or making them unhappy? Now, there's a third part, which is compassion, and that's really the empathic concern. And that kind of understanding the feeling that in the desire to make better and kind of the well-being in someone or a group of people collectively or a work culture, and in trying to improve that is the third part of empathy. And it's really a balance of all three. So when we think about in our design process, which is one of the reasons why I came to BHP is the strength of our design process and how we leverage it on every single project. All phases of our eight-step process have elements of true empathy and looking at how we're helping the client in every step of the project understand this is the first phase, and that is a huge portion of empathy. I mean, we are understanding every bit that we can about our users, the client themselves, the leadership teams. We're getting a pulse on on the culture of the company. And we're looking at ways to tie those into success measures and ways that criteria can be established to be able to find success throughout the rest of the project. Well, when you get start stepping into other steps of the process, like Discover, um, you're diving deeper into that empathy lens. You're starting to get a little bit more cognitive and problem-solving mode. But all along, all three areas of empathy are handled by different areas of your brain, from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus. They all have special ways of identifying you know, your true emotional feelings and feedback and understanding of perceptions as you learn more. So we're really learning through that discover process. When we get to the tail end of a project, we start maybe from the outside thinking, 
uh, yeah, we kind of lose the sense of needing to be emotional and understanding, but really it's the opposite. When we start to measure the true use of a space and we measure the end result of a project, we're measuring levels of emotion. We're measuring empathy. And so there's definite, the hard facts, the cognitive side, we're looking at more of the quantitative information that we gain from metrics during the measure phase, but we got to take that emotional feedback in. So looking at the emotional lens and getting the feedback that we have that's more of kind of review-based, like what are people saying? And taking that to heart and how we learn from that is really important during that phase. And then the share phase, and that's where I come today as the most powerful area of how neuroscience and behavioral science involves experiential and emotional design is through how we share the story. Yeah, yeah. We definitely want to dig into that. You said there were three areas to empathy, and I caught cognitive and compassionate. What was the third one? Emotional. So emotional is really catching the feeling. It's really just that more visceral understanding of someone's empathy. So seeing it and identification of it. Cognitive is really when the brain starts turning. You have two separate areas of your brain, like I said, and I study a lot of different psychologists that look at both emotional and cognitive. If you split those two out, they have to work together. And this is where it comes down to making decisions on how do you decide to solve for empathy, which is that the understanding desire to, to create well-being and improve the status of whatever concern is, is happening. But when you look at the two components of emotional and cognitive, they are separate, but they do work hand in hand. But some of the lead psychologists out there that have studied this for years and those that inject experience design into the way we solve problems like Don Norman has, and we've quoted Don Norman on how his experience design principles come in really handy as we look at how do we become better strategists and designers. He breaks down cognition and emotion two different ways. But cognition, he looks at it as how humans understand the world. So really, you're understanding how things turn and you see something, a reaction, and you know how to solve for that. And emotion is really how humans interpret the world. How are you acting? How are you communicating? When I look at this, I think of an example as what actors do. When they take a part, an actor really has to break down and embody the way that they interpret the world through someone else's lens. And that's empathy. When you're stepping in someone's shoes and understanding perspective, a really good actor has to be someone that's really empathic and knows how to solve a problem on the fly and not rehearse everything because, you know, everything has a bit of you know, spontaneity to it. And if it doesn't, <laughs> it's, it's not fun. So are there times, though, we talk a lot about empathy, and that's like a really popular word if you search that word yeah. right now. It comes up a bunch. Are there times when empathy can be a detriment to the relationship of the project success? It's interesting to think about empathy in relation to space planning. Is there a time where it's a hindrance? I love that question. You know, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your perspective on this. When I look at empathy, is like you said, it's become in the last three years overused, but it wasn't until like the 90s when it started to become on the stage of where scientists, neuroscientists started understanding our brains and how they are in tune with the emotional states of people. And Antonio Damasio, he realized that in studies that our brains being in tune with other people's emotional states is so strong and it can change directly change the way that we feel about a certain situation. So the capacity for empathy, it actually comes through certain brain structures he called mirror neurons. Those mirror neurons we pick up without even knowing. Because we're so in tune with others and, and our roles at BHDP, we're highly empathetic and I'm learning that too every day in the way that we interact with each other. Some of us can face this unending focus on compassion. And it can be draining. When we try to focus on helping others, and I look at the example of healthcare professionals right now. 
during a pandemic, it's heightened you know, to new levels, but their constant focus on helping people can actually take over their life. And I've seen this you know, with nurses and the way that they constantly take care. Their brain can actually go into overdrive and cause this rejection towards human affiliation. It's kind of scary to think about it, but the term that psychologists have found or kind of coined for this is defensive dehumanization. You become defensive to humanity in a way if you've put too much emphasis on it and empathy. Yeah, that is an interesting, the defensive dehumanization. I can see that as one component. I think another place where it could sometimes get us on the wrong path is when we're engaging with a client early in a process and maybe we're going through some focus groups or engagements with employees and there's a, a serious change coming. Like maybe they're going to go from 100% assigned seats to some level of free address and people are freaking out and you get focused on why people are afraid of that change and then you want to protect them. You know, so yeah. if you're empathetic, you're like, oh, my God, they're freaked out. Don't do it. It's a bad idea, yeah. even though there may be a strong business case for doing so because they realize that their seats are only 60 percent occupied and they're spending yeah. millions of dollars on real estate they're not using that could be invested back into people. And so it's like sometimes empathy requires us to listen to what the pain is, but then find out what the need is versus the want and make sure we're focusing on what they need and not what they want. And not just trying to make everybody feel better, but treating them like humans and being honest and pushing through the pain points. Yeah, as it applies to our work, we often in this world, a virtual world, we have to lean on other measures of learning. So sometimes it comes down to us looking at data specifically with what emotion we can put at it without seeing the struggles of someone on site or in person. Dehumanizing actually happens also through reading about someone's pain and struggles versus seeing it happen in action. We find it's really important when we work with our clients and, and you know, key stakeholders is that let's get people in a room. It can be much more telling and much more of a stronger bond and a stronger emotional experience. Very true. So Andy, right now you're a client leader in our workplace market, but your background is in retail and experience design. So what are some of the important emotional elements that are key to the retail customer experience? Mm -hmm. This is another really interesting question. Is what actually the first question I got asked during my interview with BHDP. I enjoy that there's a definite sentiment within the company that there's a tie between the understanding of the workplace to how the experience of retail works. And so I've made a lot of connections to that. And connection, by the use of the word right there, is actually one of the strongest elements of retail and the retail experience. When we look at stores and how they become activated through connection, we look at those that are doing it really well and use those as emulators. When you look at Apple's Genius Bar, it's based on this fundamental drive to connect. Being able to have this like crafted, self-directed shopping experience that's unique to that person as they come in and they have this series of going from one table to the next to the next to solve their problem and connect to the right person. It makes their experience so much stronger, therefore you know, inherently more relevant. It's all about those touch points. And going back to that first question, it's understanding how people behave and the emotional component of customer experience, how it feels. And if you could do that, if you know how a customer feels, it's a better predictor of loyalty than just that cognitive component I was discussing, that kind of functional aspect of effectiveness and ease, which is important, but it's much more important to understand how a customer feels and it buys into a brand experience. To kind of tie it back to workplace, yeah. there is a definite exchange in the same parameters and different attributes inside a retail experience that ties into the culture, 
the understanding and collaboration, connection between employees and leadership, connection to new talent that comes in, and how that journey works from start to end, from day in and day out, we need to understand makes people feel safe, makes them feel invested, makes them feel loyal to the company. So there's a direct correlation to those attributes. You know, it's interesting that you went right where I was going to ask because I was curious what the connection between, you know, what can you learn from retail? What does that bring into workplace? But you went right there, Andy. What I was thinking about was I had read forever ago, and I can't quote where, unfortunately, but, you know, people are more likely to be loyal to a company when they feel like they have a friend at work. You know, yep. so it's a, it's not about the job itself. It's about that sense of connection, that human connection that you brought up before. And maybe there's emotion tied to that and so on. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you're thinking about that connection and emotion and the journey, you know, how is that being infused into how we're thinking about workplace? You know, when I think of that immediately, I think of how architecture and design firms are set up today. We have all the technology that we could ask for right now. I mean, if as long as your company you know, is stable in these days at work, we're all more or less on the same playing field. So we have these systems and tools and materials to create great efficient design and advance to a new level. But what really sets companies apart like us is the way you address problems that exist for clients. Creating that relationship and listening, documenting the pain points is very important. There's definite correlation with those aspects to every step of the process. We try to consistently deliver on expectations. And what that does is it gains trust. You know, it unlocks potential to share emotions. So when you can gain that trust at every step, and it comes through measures of creating the right types of deliverable feedback. It comes down to making sure you're tracking to the success criteria throughout the project. We're already using sensory matrices. We're using personas in very interesting and compelling ways with corresponding narratives that tie back to the personas and the sensory elements that really charge the design. We're finding that these human-centered attributes tying into a journey and story are the most important elements of that experience design framework. This is all a lot of different behavioral sciences and neurosciences that affect our perceptions. But those values that we find that correlate with how we understand space, design, color, light, are all elements that are foundational to this experience design framework. As designers, as architects, we take really strong consideration of how space plays, how our clients perceive space. We look at how light comes into a room and how light elevates mood. We look at soft surfaces and curves and how they embrace feelings much better and make people feel a little more comforted than sharp angled elements. So there's a lot of elements to spatial orientation and design elements and colors and light that play into this that are going to be foundations to that framework. Yeah, there's a lot of complexity there. And it's not explicit because you're talking about you're not going to a client and saying, hey, we're going to design your space with behavioral science and then ask the first question, (laughs) which part of your day activates your amygdala? You're collecting the science and saying, hey, what's the best part of your day? What's the worst part of your day? What makes you excited to come to work? So when thinking about this experience design framework, you have to think of it within time and space. There is a starting and an ending point and that may be repetitive or, but there is a time and space element to figuring out Where are the low points? Where are the high points? Where does conditioning happen? Where does memory happen? And how does it make someone feel better? And that's where I'll lead a little bit more around the happiness element. And this starts with the power of story. So, you know, my favorite psychologist, Danny Kahneman, one of the things that he's identified is that the culmination is people want a story. And as we design for people, we want to craft 
the best story for them. And when you look at this framework that helps become this foundation of where we can pull data in and put it into emotional translation, it's where's the starting point and where is the potential ending point. And it's like when you watch a great story or read a great book, you'll start from a point of kind of understanding a setting and then you get to a point where there's ups and downs, you feel deep stress or strain, and then you come out most likely in a great story on top in this pinnacle where story is important to how we look at customer journey is we want to hit those highest highs and we want those to be towards the end. And a lot of the studies in psychology, especially uh, Danny Kahneman, is that the ending is the most important. The ending dominates. So our narratives that we set up are positioned to allow that ending to happen, to have this awesome experience that ties directly to memory. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about the science of memory. Um, Do it. Because I, I was actually studying something on the science of memory and how it's like the proteins in the brain that form memories. The way I understood this article, they were playing with people's memories. They showed them a picture of an accident. They would bring them back in at different intervals and they would talk about it and they would change things. But like in the original picture, the car was green. And it's like they would ask them a question. Do you remember where that yellow car was when it crashed? And people would say that. And then in their memory change, because it's like your brain has to rebuild that memory every time it accesses it like it's Play-Doh. And sometimes it's a little different than the original. I love that. Obviously, our memories can deteriorate over time, but they're triggered by certain stimuli we have from our senses. And so we make a strong connection to memory early on in age. You know, our memories, they could be sparked by certain things that we've sensed in different ways. And all of our senses compound on each other. There's ways that we can heighten our sensory elements by tying a smell to a sight. It's kind of almost like the synesthetic-like thing. Synesthetes, I guess they understand how to directly correlate a color to a touch or a sound, find ways to even make stronger connections in memory. So that's another really interesting thing to think about, that certain brains are even wired more to hold memories together. But what you're discussing and questioning is how we can affect our understanding of something after time lapses. And throughout experience, we're obviously going to remember things that surprised us more than something that's just more passive. And so what's really interesting is that I think it was actually Antonio Damasio, the one that kind of discovered mirror neurons. He realized that just the mere change in something you like unexpected that you did not know about or have not recognized become much more powerful memory elements. So when we discover things that we've never seen before, or if something catches our eye, if it's just kind of a unique experience, it ties to our memory much stronger. When it's something you start to throw in, and I know if, if you see this on cop shows and things like where they try to trick you with things that you put in, they can influence you really quickly. That deception that magicians are really good at tricks our brains. We cannot affect it. We cannot be smarter to get away from that because we make connections in certain ways and we can only focus on certain amount of things. And there's some studies on this too, that, you know, we can be influenced really quickly on the color of something if it did not tie to any other sense that we caught in an experience. And so we can be tricked to that unless it's tied. If we can find a way to tie it to another sense that our brain picks up on, if we felt it, if it had a certain smell and smell is a very important one I'll get to here. Yeah, I want to know, like, what's the most yeah. important sense tied to memory yeah. there? Yeah. Smell. Wow. Smell is the most important because there's a really important pathway that happens in our brain between the amygdala and the hippocampal regions in the brain. And there's neurons that run from our olfactory bulb back and forth constantly. And they make these really rapid connections. 
And when we start smelling stuff early on in life, and you know, animals are set to do this as soon as they're born. They don't have sight. They actually have hearing, but they pick up on nasal memory quicker than anything else. And that just keeps intensifying the longer animals live. The same with us. We strengthen those memories. And what happens is those neurons that are happening, connecting in between where our smell, the olfactory bulb, is into the other areas of where we emotionally tie ourself and our decision-making by creating decisions by what our emotions are, the hippocampal and the, the amygdala regions, it ties in our emotions directly to smell. And so smell and emotion are actually one memory. The way that we remember things through smell and the way that we emotionally responded to something are directly correlated. When we look at ways that we learn from sensory elements, everybody learns different. We learn as auditory listeners, we learn visually, we learn kinesthetically through motion. We try to inject all the different ways that people learn because everybody's brain set up different with those sensory in the way that we come to designing experience or making experience much more meaningful, you know, including the idea of touch. Printed materials evoke more brain activity. It's just a, a fact. Interesting. So when you said that smell is connected to memory, I remember reading something a long time ago about if you chew gum while you're studying for an exam, and then go into the exam chewing the same type of gum, you're yep. more likely to remember the test answers. Yep. And before I thought it was like a repetition of an activity, but now maybe it is more that smell. Yeah, your example of chewing gum, I've heard that one too. It's directly correlated to the smell. There's definitely a connection to touch there. But when you look at the sense of taste, for example, taste is 80%, if not more sometimes, all smell. And so people think it's one of our five senses. It's so unbalanced. Our sense of smell, and people don't appreciate enough, is actually much more of a piece of the pie to all of our senses. And it takes over most of that of taste. When you're tying those neurons that are working as you're studying and listening and learning, a lot of that happens when you have some sort of smell, you have a lit candle in the room, you come back to kind of remember something. If you have that candle lit, you're going to have much more clarity around what you were doing before, which is really powerful. So yeah. you did talk about storytelling before. Um, yeah. And the power of storytelling. And I know that's something that we like to do with clients a lot. Can you expand on that a little bit more? I'll tell you a story that I heard, which is really kind of interesting to think uh, how it relates to creating great experiences. We think as empaths and trying to understand emotion behind an experience and what we're designing and how we're creating a better experience for customers. I look to the hospitality arena. One of the, I think, the epitome of empathy leaders out there in hospitality is Danny Meyer and what he does with Union Square Hospitality Group. And he has the notoriously rated number one restaurant in New York, 11 Madison Park. You know, you step into this restaurant, you know you're up for a paying a bill that's going to be very high, but your expectations need to be met. So you walk in, it's a beautiful interior, you get sat and you know you're in for a seven course meal and every expectation is being met from the service. You get to the point, you're in the fourth plate. And the story I heard about this couple that was at their fourth dish, they ultimately hit this low point on dish four because they realized this is their first trip to New York City and they forgot to get, this is their last night, and they forgot to get a classic New York style piece of pizza before leaving to go back home. Yeah, why did they even go? <laughs> yeah, it's like, why would you go to New York without getting pizza? What was really interesting about this, and this is an actual function at 11 Madison Park, is there is a person that floats. And this floater around the restaurant dining room could be a waiter, it could be a runner, but their title is the Dreamweaver. They make magic. 
they just like in Disney, you go to Disney for the magic and you you're swirled away and the storyline can be so memorable there. What really caused this memory to be important to these people is that during their conversation, they expressed to themselves that they forgot to get a piece of pizza. Well, the Dreamweaver happened to walk by and caught wind of this. So the Dreamweaver walked back. He knows the waiter waiting on this table. And he said, so your couple there at that table just said that they missed out on a piece of authentic New York slice of pizza. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go out and get the best pizza I know of. And I'm going to go real quick. It's going to be at their dish on six. So at their sixth plate, they're going to open up and they're going to see that pizza there. And not realize it, but that surprise and delight moment had a huge rush. As it came to the table and they opened it up, they saw this piece of pizza without being told it was going to happen, caused such a increase in dopamine rush in your brain that they will never forget that moment ever again, because dopamine is one of those emotional triggers that next to the excitement, the other excitement hormones that we have in our brain, that is the most important, you know, serotonin that keeps us awake all day, uh, oxytocin, which helps us become more emotionally happy. Those hormones are all important, but that dopamine rush was so huge that it caused a memory that would never go away. And they want to share that story beyond that night. And I'm sure they'd still tell it today. Sure. And it made the experience so great. If you can tell a story and leave the low point, which again, you're paying that bill at the end. I'm sure that's not a way to end a great night is paying a bill. I wish every restaurant you could pay up front. So you don't have to worry about that moment. Yeah. At the end. Cause I mean, you know, that happened to me, right? No, was that no, but, no, but weren't oh, you excited for a little bit? Right. Yes. <laughs> Well, let's talk happiness. So, okay. Andy, can you talk a little bit about happiness and our human drive to share? Yeah, so this is exciting. It's probably the most exciting element in learning how human behavior works is trying to find pleasure and, and experience and, and pleasure in our relationships. This drive to find happiness comes off the heels of some of the other principles I was talking about. Anticipation is huge when we talk about how we can perceive someone's happiness and we can make people anticipate and we can make people feel sort of an attraction to really hope for something better. And so the psychologist I've mentioned before, Danny Kahneman, he's very focused on happiness and understanding what makes people feel like they're pleasant or unpleasant. There's a certain psychology he's coined for this. It's called hedonic psychology. This idea of what makes things pleasant and unpleasant in life comes down to a true psychology that can be studied through different types of looks at economy and how we understand utility. This actually won him the Nobel Prize. But what I take from that is how we make decisions from an emotional standpoint. The outcomes of those decisions become happiness elements. When you look back as a consumer yourself day in, day out, making decisions emotionally, a lot of us are tied to looking at reviews. And that's a really important thing. Retailers find ways to inject reviews to entice and make anticipation become success lever to, to end a customer journey. But we make decisions by how we're going to plan something and how we're going to, before we get in the store, before we purchase online, we're reviewing how someone else's happiness was shared to us and how we can anticipate our happiness. It's a really interesting thing to study as we're trying to design for people and there's a doctor who studies this more than I think most psychologists. Her name's Dr. Lori Sanchez, and she's interesting to listen to on a podcast she does and the things she writes about. She actually has the most popular class at Yale, where she teaches all about happiness, which is very interesting. I learned from her that, you know, in her studies that show that sharing is a huge component 
of happiness. And at a very early age, we all learn how to share. You know, we don't want to watch something as a kid. We don't want to watch something by ourselves. We want to share that story with someone else. We find it more interesting and more happiness is created by sharing that with someone. Before we can talk, we're showing our parents something. We're handing something to somebody to share because we're trying to get that reaction. And so that's where happiness starts. That explains why toddlers are always handing you things. (laughs) That's right. You got it. Because they they do want to share. They can understand your feedback, that mirror neuron thing I was bringing up before. Um, Because that's how your emotional decisions are made based on how others are feeling, how you might feel empathy towards them. And you have to understand that not everything is happy. And you have to understand that there are low points. Thinking about those crucial things you have to do in life, like going into a surgery, let's just say, or going into something that you know there's going to be a a law or something that's very uncomfortable that's not going to give you happiness. There are studies that psychologists have found if you can extend that experience longer, and it's a little bit more gut-wrenching than you want it to be, but if you can extend it longer and have a portion of happiness towards the end, have this really comfortable experience as you get further into that, people will opt out for the longer, more painful experience than a short, painful experience because it ended with happiness. And so it's like that you have this great vacation and you want to remember everything from it. You take all these pictures and you're, as Danny Conrad calls it, you're remembering self. You're taking photos and everything. You're not living up your experience on everything. People want to take photos of their food. They want to take photos of everything. And then you end the trip and you get canceled flights at the end and you have this disastrous end. All you remember about that trip is how it ended bad. You can go back and look at photos and it kind of gives you some happiness. But the trip, if you think about it, you know, you had this anticipation before and it's great. It ended horrible, and you think of the bad thing. You think of the ending, how poor it was. So, Yeah. It's interesting, too, because I remember I went to Paris, and we were in the Louvre, and that's where the Mona Lisa's housed. And I don't know if you've ever been there and seen it. It's very small. Yeah. The problem is it's very famous. And so the Louvre has this vast body of magnificent works, but everybody that goes there, they're only interested in taking their picture with the Mona Lisa. So the room that it's housed in is miserable because there's so many people crammed in there just trying to take a picture of themselves with that painting to show that they'd been there. And it feels to me like a video game where they're just trying to check the box. Yes, I did it. Experience check. And me, I wanted to look at it and see the brush strokes. But the weird part was when I was frustrated, I wanted to leave, I turned around and on the opposite wall of the Mona Lisa is this painting that takes up the entire surface of the wall. My memory, it's 16 to 20 feet tall. Lord knows it's probably smaller than that. But the impressive magnitude of the piece that nobody was paying attention to yeah. blew me away. Even now, if I see a picture of the Mona Lisa, I'm like, eh, that small thing, bleh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a surprise and delight moment that you had. Yeah. An unexpected moment that it caught you off guard. Exactly. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating. Did you have any final thoughts? Yeah. Um, I mean, I look at we're kind of off the, the heels of happiness there. And I think it's important for everybody and myself included to kind of slow down when thinking about how all of this applies to our work. It's testing my intuition and looking at how I audit my emotions, assessing decisions individually, not just coming off of collecting everything as one and deciding. It's really important to kind of break down those factors, really slow down and be precise. And then the other thing I think too is that being present and mindful. I think this applies directly to this and both cognitively and emotionally. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions presented by BHDP for this episode, Emotional Experience Design with Andy House, client leader at BHDP. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I am Brian Trainer, your host, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design.